The following message is by Pastor Andrew Beto, pastor of First Baptist Church of Orchard, Texas. More information on First Baptist Church Orchard can be found at fbcorchard.com. So this morning, I want to open us up in a word of prayer and then we'll get down to it. Dear Jesus, God, thank you so much for the opportunity that we have to study your word this morning. God, your word is a burning fire. It is the most powerful thing that any of us will ever encounter. God, I ask that you would unleash it in this place. That there would be nothing holding it back. That there would be nothing stumbling it. That there would be nothing keeping it from transforming our lives for you this morning, God. If there's anything that is in me that holds this back, Lord, I ask that you would just rip it away from me. God, that you would burn away all the impurities we bring in here from outside this place. God, you would leave us open and bare before you. And God, I ask these things in your holy name. Amen. Well, we are, we are finally there. After months and months of preparation, practice, hard work, blood, sweat, and tears, we have reached that moment this cultural moment where the contest will begin. That's right. New Hampshire primary. <laughs> Is there something else? Did, did, I, did I miss something? That's right. You see what I did there? We have been listening to politicians talk for literally years about what's about to happen. They have made promises, layered on top of promises, that most of them can't keep. I, sometimes when I listen to some of the things these guys say, I think to myself, I could probably win an election if I came into a room and promised that I would make unicorns real <laughs> and give one to each of you. And for some reason, just by the fact that I said it, you'd be like, oh, you, I like you. who doesn't like unicorns? I want a unicorn with, the, with sneakers on. It'd be great. And, and, and yet, all of us intuitively know that talk is cheap, right? It's easy to say stuff. It's easy to promise that you're going to do something. And it is completely another thing to actually... Make what you say come true, or to mean what you say. And, and in reality, that's not that much different than Super Bowl Sunday either, because you got people on both sides. And I will tell you, I don't care who wins. I'm, I, some of you guys are super like intense about. It. I heard you guys in the back like about ready to come to blows over this. I'm okay. Hey, these guys get millions of dollars to play football. These guys get million dollars to play football. If they win or lose, they still go home and make millions of dollars. So it's just not that dramatic to me. Right? But, uh, but at the same token, on both sides, people have been talking and talking and talking and, uh, about, oh, you know, it's going to be like this, or this is going to be our game plan, or this is what we're going to do, or this is our secret weapon. And, and at the end of the day, talk is cheap. Talk is cheap. That's the way it is with Christianity as well. Right? We, we have been studying Matthew, and we've been studying Jesus coming and talking about who he is. 
and doing amazing things and, and, and really changing the trajectory of the history of Israel. And his disciples have finally come to this place where they admit, where they, they proclaim, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And it's amazing. It's this amazing transformational moment as they make this statement and Jesus looks at Peter and says, you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church. But this morning what we're going to see is that while Peter did say something amazing, he didn't really realize what he was talking about. So if you'll turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16, we're going to start with verse 21, and we're going to see that there is far more to Jesus being the Christ, the Son of the living God, than simply some words that Peter said. There are implications here that are going to change relationships, that are going to change the world. So if you'll join with me, beginning at verse 21, chapter 16, verse 21. For those of you who don't go to Sunday school, that's in the New Testament. It's the front part. Back part. My bad. <laughs> I didn't go to Sunday school either today. From then on, Jesus began to point out his, to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, the chief priests, and scribes. Be killed. And be raised on the third day. Now, what you have to realize is this is one of the first instances in the Gospel of Matthew where Jesus actually begins to lay out what exactly is going to happen. What it means to be the Messiah. He has spent the first 15 chapters trying to get them to understand that he is the Messiah. That he is the Son of the living God. That he is the one that the prophecies have indicated, right? He has... Prove to everybody that this is the case. Some of them have believed him. Some of them haven't believed him. But now we're at the place where, yes, okay, I'm the Christ. But this is what it means to be the Christ. These are the implications of what it takes to be the Christ. And so he talks to them and he says that this fantastic news that the Christ has come to Israel is shadowed by this tragedy that has to occur. See, he is coming in glory to change history, to do amazing things. But before the glory, before the glory is the tragedy. Before the glory is the suffering. For Christ to come into his kingdom, he has to pass through the gateway of suffering and death. And that's a game changer for some of these guys. See, it's easy to follow the Messiah when you're a broke-down old fisherman, and this is the coolest thing that's ever happened to you in your entire life. It's a totally different thing for the guy that you've been following to tell you that he is going to go to the seat of Jewish power, and you guys are going to lose. I want you to think about what that would be like. 
You have left literally everything to build your life around this man who is supposed to be the embodiment of Israel's king, who is supposed to lead to victory in Israel. You have backed this horse. Everything that you have is riding on this. And he tells you that he is that the, that the mission, that the plan is to go to Israel, to go to Jerusalem, and to die. That's the plan. Like, seriously, that's the plan? Yeah, that's the plan. The plan is you're going to go die. Yep, that's the plan. Okay, now what do you do with that? This is the shift in the gospel as Matthew begins to show over and over and over again people's responses to this message of who the Christ is, what he's going to do, what this mission looks like. We're going to see the disciples respond to this. We're going to see the people respond to it. Ultimately, we're going to see the leaders respond to this. This is going to become the theme that now happens. The book has now turned. And what we're going to see is that this is a hard message. It's much harder than I am the Messiah because it upends everything that you expect to happen. Jesus begins to tell these people that he must suffer and he must die. And what we have to understand here is that this is the culmination of all of the themes that have been told throughout the Old Testament. For those of you who guys have, who have been going on Wednesday night or have been going on Sunday morning to Sunday school, you know that we're talking about these, these themes that pervade the Old Testament, these things that, that God has written into the salvation history of human beings, right? These things. Themes that just that resonate deeply within us. We're going to see that the sacrifice of Jesus is the culmination of the faithfulness of God and the faithlessness of his people. This people who rebelled against God in the sight of the tabernacle that we you guys learned about this morning, right? God living among his people as a visible sign, as a pillar of fire by night and a pillar of cloud by day, feeding them with heavenly food, having rescued them. They look at God. God tells them, go into the land, and they say, mm, no, I think we're good here. This is going to be the culmination of the faithlessness of a people who, when they had entered the land and been given cities that they never built, living on farms that they did not till, among vineyards that they didn't plant, rebelled against God and abandoned God and sought out other gods to worship. This is the culmination of the faithlessness of a people that received profit after profit from God and killed or persecuted all of them. This is the culmination of the faithlessness of a people who were selected by God as his holy people and wanted to be anybody else. But more than that, this is the culmination of the faithfulness of a God who never abandoned his people, no matter how much they rejected him. The faithfulness of a God who rescued his people from slavery and exile and defeat and death. This is the culmination of of these themes that have permeated the Old Testament, these ideas that God has established a standard for us and that all of us fall hopelessly short of it. 
This idea that blood atones for sin and that atonement can be made by sacrifice. All of these themes have been written into the history of mankind for this one cataclysmic moment in history. This is the moment that everything points to, the hinge upon which everything turns. That's what Jesus is talking about here. This is the reality that Jesus is bringing out to his people. That he has come to die as the sacrifice for God's people. To redeem all of creation and all of humanity. And none of it can happen if he does not suffer and die. That's the message of Jesus. And, and so often we hear people talk about, well, the message of Jesus is this. The message of Jesus is that. The message of Jesus is be cool to each other because being cool is awesome. And, and that is part of the message of Jesus. But the heart of Jesus' message is this idea of a suffering, crucified God. It's bloody, it's nasty, and it's real. It is as evil and twisted as human sin. Because human sin is evil and twisted. Jesus is the glorious Messiah. And he will come into his glorious kingdom. But to do that, he has to pass through death. See, this is, this is where the rubber meets the road. This is where reality happens. And this is where all of the talk that the disciples have been bandying about is shown to be cheap. Because Peter, Petros, the rock, the one upon whom the church will be built, wants nothing to do with this. Right? He has just confessed that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, literally God incarnate walking on earth among them. And so he proceeds to lecture God on his plan. Right? That, that's what's going to happen next. So I want you to continue with me in, in verse 22. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. He's rebuking Jesus, the guy who calms the storm, who feeds people with bread that he conjures out. He's rebuking Jesus. Oh, no, Lord, this will never happen to you. <laughs> but he, Jesus, turned and told Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me because you are not thinking about God's concerns, but man's concerns. Now, I want you to I want you to take this. If you take nothing away from this, take this. If Jesus calls you Satan, it's a bad thing. Like that's a bad day. You made a you made a poor choice. Peter made a terrible choice. Now, I want you to understand this. Peter didn't do it from, from, like, he's not a bad guy. He's looking at Jesus, and he's seeing this ministry that's going on, and he's seeing all these successes that are happening, and he's like, why would you derail all of this wonderful stuff that you've been doing to go, this is not going to happen. Jesus, we're going to keep this from happening. We, we want to go for the win-win. We want everybody to come out on the right side of this. Israel wins. Everybody wins. It's good. And Jesus responds to him by calling him Satan. And I, I want you to realize this. This is the same language that Jesus uses in the desert when he's talking 
to Satan. When Satan says, surely you can make bread out of these stones, or surely you can fall off the height of the temple and God will save you. And what does Jesus say? He says, get behind me, Satan. Don't tempt me the way that you tempted Adam, because I am not going to fail. And here Peter is tempting Jesus, inadvertently tempting Jesus, inadvertently trying to derail the salvation historical plan that God has had from the very beginning. And he's doing it. Because he doesn't understand and can't commit to the sacrifices that Jesus is asking. Because he has come face to face with the reality of what the kingdom of God means. And it is scary. See, the suffering is part of Christ's mission. It's not a byproduct. It's not something to be avoided. It is part of Christ's mission, an integral part of who he is. And no matter how good his intentions, Peter is opposing the salvation of all mankind. Is that the, the road to hell is paved with good intentions? Peter's intentions are good. But he is tempting Christ with the path to hell. See, Peter's full of big talk and great ideas, but at the end of the day, talk is cheap, and grace isn't. We've been taught our whole lives that grace is this free gift and that grace is free and that grace is free and grace is awesome, and it is. There is nothing that you can do to earn the grace of God, but brothers, it ain't cheap. Grace comes at a price. It cost Jesus everything he had. And so with that in mind, with this idea that, that grace is not cheap, that the commitment to Christ isn't easy, Christ begins to lay out for them what this thing called discipleship is really going to cost them. In verse 24, it says, Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wants to come with me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life because of me will find it. What will benefit a man if he gains the whole world and yet loses his life? Or what will a man give in exchange for his life? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will reward each according to what he has done. I assure you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. See, what follows Paul, Peter's rebuke, is one of the most concise statements of what it means to be a disciple in the entire gospel. Discipleship means following Christ through willing sacrifice of everything. It's not a partway deal. It's not a just kind of a part-time job or, or a nine-to-five job. Following Christ requires everything that they have. And I want you to understand this. Jesus is telling this to men who have given up everything to follow him. And it's like Jesus is saying, yes, you've given me everything to follow me, but you're going to have to give more. It's one thing to give up everything to follow some guy that you think is going to be the king. It's another thing to give up everything you have to follow a guy that's going to go die on a cross. That's a different, that's a categorically different action. See, the crucial move, motive of discipleship is risking one's life 
on the dare that Jesus is it, that he's all, that what he says about himself is true. That's what discipleship is. Forming your behavior on Jesus and his anti-success model. Right? The model is we're going to go and we're going to fail. Like, that's the model. We're, we're, this is going to, we're going to have a bad ending. That's the model. It's building your life on this idea that nothing in this world ultimately matters. Right? We, we've used that quote over and over again by, by Jim Elliott, and it's, and it's great. He is no fool who risks what he cannot keep to gain that which he can never lose. It's understanding that there are realities outside of the things that you see and that those realities are the things that matter. That's what discipleship is. That's what, that's what picking your cross up and following Jesus means. We've, we've taken picking up our cross to mean like when things go bad, like, oh man, I can't find a parking space. Well, I'm picking up my cross to No. That's not what the passage means. It doesn't mean the indignities of life. It doesn't mean the, the mild annoyances. It means a death to yourself. It means giving up everything that you have. Last week we had a baptism. Next week we're going to have a baptism. And one of the things that we do, this is a symbol of what the Christian life is, is I take a person and I symbolically drown them. Like, have you ever thought about how creepy that is? Don't, don't feel bad. It's going to be okay. Really. <laughs> Seriously, it's really good. We're good. I was a lifeguard. I mean, I'm going to take this person. I'm going to put them underneath the water, symbolizing that they have died. That's creepy. But it's what happens. It is a symbol of the reality that she used to be dead. And now she's alive. She used to be hellbound, and now she's not. That's what we're doing. That's the reality. That's what Jesus is talking about here, that the things around us don't matter because the heavenly realities are so much more real than the things around you. It's a low road. It's a servant's road. It's a countercultural road. Right? It's following the Jesus who, being in very nature God, did not think equality with God was something to be pursued, but rather taking on the nature of a slave was obedient even unto death. Even death on a cross. It's the low road. It's the servant's road. Paul described the implications of relying on this road when he said, for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men to be pitied. That's what discipleship is. It is being so sold out for Jesus that if Jesus doesn't exist, you have wasted your whole life, the only life you'll ever have. Discipleship is placing all of your eggs in Christ's basket. See, talk is cheap. Grace is not. It's free, but it will cost you everything you have. 
See, there is no Christ without the crucifixion, and there is no Christianity without sacrifice. Without Christ, without crucifixion, there is no Christ. Without the crucifixion, the death, and the resurrection, he's just a guy who taught some stuff and said crazy things about himself. If he didn't die on the cross and rise again, you should pay no attention to the things that he says. That, that's the lie that our world teaches us, that, that Jesus was this great moral teacher. But if you actually read the things that Jesus says about himself, he says some cool stuff like be nice to your enemies, which is if Jesus isn't real, being nice to your enemies is stupid. Right? If, if being nice, if, if, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, if there is no God and Jesus wasn't resurrected, then forgiving your enemies and blessing those who persecute you is stupid. You should kill your enemies. Right? You should be like Shaka Zulu. Don't leave an enemy behind you alive on the field of battle. Right? That's the reality if there is no God and there is no Christ. If there is no God and there is no Christ, you're just deluding yourself. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, then he was a guy who said crazy things and claimed to be God. That's not somebody you should build your life on. But because he was the Christ... Because he died on the cross and because he was resurrected, he can change the fundamental way that we interact with each other and the way that we interact with reality. Because we know that death is not the end. We know that there is something outside of death. We know that there is our worlds outside of the world that we live in. We know that what we do here echoes into eternity. And that really, the lives that we're living are but a small slice of what is to come. Brothers, there's no Christ without the crucifixion, and there is no Christianity without suffering. If anybody tells you that being, that being a Christian is easy and filled with blessing, they're, they're lying because they want to sell you something. I'm just telling you right now. Anybody tells you, oh, you become a Christian, everything's going to work out for you, brother. Name that blessing and you claim. They're lying to you. Or they're not reading their Bible the right way. See, when I read my Bible, what it tells me is that the price of discipleship is incredibly high. It's incredibly high. If I believe the things that Jesus says, then I have to accept that if I seek to protect my own life, I will ultimately lose it. So i got to ask you this. Do you sacrifice for Christ? Like, do you really, do you really sacrifice for Christ? I, I, I talk to people a lot, and we talk about, you know, we talk about uh, uh, ISIS and all this stuff that's going on in, in the Middle East, and, and this, this, this theme comes back over and over again. What happens when, when, when ISIS comes here, and they put a gun to your head, and they say, you know, reject Jesus, or I'm going to shoot you, and it's like, well, I, I, I'm going to hold firm. That's great. Number one, that's easy to say. It's a totally different thing when somebody's got a gun to your kid's head. But, but I kind of want to throw that back and say, let me see if I understand you. You're going to give your life for Jesus, but you're not willing to give your time or your money or your pet sins to Jesus? Like, is that, is that real? Like, what, 
What possible reason would you have for believing that you're actually going to stand firm during trial when you can't do the little things? You've got to ask yourself the question, are you really dedicated to Christ? Are you really willing to do the things that Christ has called you to do? See, dying's easy. Living's hard. Day in, day out. That's hard. But dying is a one-time thing. Living for Christ is the hard thing to do. I want, you to, I want you to think about this. If you attend church one time a week for one hour, you are dedicating one half of one percentage of your time to God. Does, does that seem... Like losing your life for Christ? I mean, I'm just, I'm just throwing that out there. Like, is that, is that being dedicated to Christ? See, we have such a low standard of what we think that, I mean, I'm a pastor. I'm like, man, please just come to church once. Please come once there. You know, you know what being a dedicated Christian is? If you, if you, like, you do the surveys, they consider a dedicated Christian somebody who comes to church once a month. Once a month, guys. That's the goal. That's what we're looking for. Like, hey, man, you got people come to church once a month? You're a, you're a rock star. If you are saved, it is not your time. You have been bought at a price. Everything, not one half of 1%, every single minute of every day belongs to the person that bought you. Because grace was free, but it ain't cheap. Every breath you take came because somebody died so you could take it. Not one half of 1%. It's all, everything, everything you have. That's what Christ is talking about here. That's what God is asking for. He's asking for literally everything you have. What about your money? Oh, no, don't talk about money, Pastor. Don't talk about money. You talk about sin. You can talk about hell, but don't talk about money. Our time and our money are the two things that we have, the two things that we worship. Many of you will tell me that you wish you gave more, but the times are tough. It's too tough to give. But I, I got to ask you, do you have a biblical view of whose money it is? Got a biblical view? I mean, is it your money? I want you to ask yourself, if anybody here has got a mutual fund, Back when, I, back when I had a real job, I used to have a mutual fund. Um, and and you, pay, you go through there and you look at it when you, when you read the prospectus, right? You read the prospectus and you start going through and you're like, okay, I put the money in here. And then the, this some dude up in New York City is going to take like a percentage, right? He's going to take like 5% of my money. He's taking 5% of my money to manage my money. I'm like, that's terrible, 5%? I'm going to find some dude who's going to do it for 2%, right? You're managing God's money. And if you tithe, you're taking a 90% management fee. Would you put your money in that mutual fund? It's not your money. We, in church, we, in Sunday school, we learned about the tabernacle, right? They built the tabernacle in the desert. And everybody brought in their possessions, all their gold, all their silver, all their fabrics, all this stuff. And it was, we're like, wow, what a sacrifice. 
They were slaves. They didn't get that stuff for being slaves. They got it because God caused the Egyptians to give it to the people. Not one cent of your money belongs to you. It all belongs to God. And if you are dedicated to God, you'll recognize that. See, dying's easy. Living for Christ is hard. Living for Christ means giving up the little pet sins that you keep, you know, behind here, like a like an annoying little yappy dog that you still love. You know, like you're one of those people that has one of these annoying little, if you have one of those annoying dogs, please don't write me letters about it because I, I don't want to hear it. You know, when you got this little dog back here and you're like, oh, I'm going to feed you little scraps of like bacon from the table because you're so cute. This little dog that like nips at your heels and, you know, goes to the bathroom on the carpet and everything. What's your, what's your little sin you keep that you don't tell anybody about, that you feed from the table, that you, that you don't want to deal with? Is it pride? You think you're a good person? Do you vote the right way? What, what is it? See, dying's easy. Living, living's hard. And living for Christ means opening that up to the light. It means exposing that darkness so that all the little cockroaches scurry away. It means taking that wound that's festering and opening it up so that it can dry out and be healed. That's, that's what living for Christ means. But guys, I don't, I don't want to send you out of here with this idea that Christianity is this crushing burden, right? I just spent the past five minutes, 10 minutes telling you about how hard Christianity is. And it is incredibly hard. But the amazing thing is that these guys that write these letters and these gospels, they, they get told that life is going to be super hard for them and life is incredibly hard for them. And they face, they face prison and they face beatings and they face losing everything that they have. But whenever they start their letters, they say, I counted great joy to suffer for Christ. I count it great joy to suffer for the name of Jesus Christ. See, the crazy thing is that when Jesus says, take my burden upon you, for it is easy and light, he's talking about this. He's talking about the reality that giving up your life should seem like a terrible, terrible thing to do until you do it and realize that it is great joy, that there is freedom in dying to yourself. When I was a senior in high school, I was suicidal. I literally thought about killing myself. Everything in my life had fallen apart. Or at least it seemed that way. I was a teenager, whatever. And I can remember thinking to myself, there's nothing left for me to do. Nothing makes me happy. I might as well just go and kill myself. And then the thought went through my mind, well, if you're going to kill yourself, you might as well die to yourself and try living for Jesus and see how that works out. And it was a game changer for me. Because when you die to yourself, when you give up this life, when you stop trying to save your own life, you gain it. See, the, the problem so often is not that Jesus doesn't want you to have any fun or Jesus wants your life to be terrible. It's that the things that we think make our lives good are a pale 
image of what is really good. C.S. Lewis describes it this way. He says, we're like little kids in a slum making mud pies out of the filth in the gutter. And a man comes and asks us if we want to go see the beach and have a vacation by the sea. And we say, no, I'm good in this, in this ditch. Because we cannot imagine the joys that come with serving God. We cannot imagine the joy of salvation as all of the pain and the guilt gets lifted off of us. We, we have no conception of the power of the Holy Spirit surging in us, giving us the power to be able to throw off the garbage in this world. We have no, no clue what real peace really is as the peace of Christ overwhelms us. As the God who created the universe holds us in the palm of his hand. Brothers and sisters, there is joy in this life. It is joy that comes on the other side of death to self. See, dying is easy. Seeking your own life is what is hard. There is joy in this life to be had by dying to yourself and embracing the cross. And there is a greater, more powerful, more transcendent joy than you will ever imagine in the world to come. As your true life starts, as reality begins, and as you spend eternity praising God, the God who made you, who loved you, who died for you. Guys, as you leave this place, as we, as we go out into the world, and as reality comes crashing back in, you need to make a decision. Is this going to be the only time this week that you think about God? Is this going to be the only time this week that you spend in the presence of God? And, and I'm, I'm thankful you're here. I am. Please don't get me. Please don't think that I'm saying I'm not thankful you're here. I am. I'm a pastor, man. I love it when we have people here. That's what we do. But this can't be the only time that you think about God. This can't be the only time that you pray. This can't be the only time that you spend with your Father. We are going to enter into a time of Lent as we prepare to celebrate the death and resurrection of Christ, I want you to use the next 40 days. I want you to use it to grow closer to God. I want you to use it to develop a relationship. Not a long-distance camp friendship, but a real, actual, no-joke relationship. I want you to pray every day. I want you to read your Bible every day. It's 40 days. You can do anything for 40 days. Try it, and I guarantee you that it will change your life. I guarantee you if you spend 40 days in honest, heartfelt prayer and relationship with your Father, you will never be the same again. But it's going to cost you. It's going to cost you. It's going to cost you your time. 
It costs you your life. Because I'll tell you from personal experience, God can and does ask everything that you have. But brothers, I'll tell you this. It is a great joy to die to yourself. Dying's easy. Living's the hard thing. Please bow your heads with me. Dear sweet Jesus, God, I ask that you would be with us. God, if there is somebody in this room that is holding on to their life, white knuckle, won't let it go, God, I ask that you give them the strength. Give them the strength to let go. Give them the strength to embrace death and new life. God, it's scary. I know it's scary. Give them the courage. Lord, I ask that you would be with us, that we would be a community that live out this new life, that we be a community that live sold out and dedicated to you, that we would be a community that give all that we have, all that we are, all the time to serve you. God, that none of us would hold anything back, time, treasures, sins, talents, family, nothing. That we would count nothing more important than you. God, I ask these things in your holy name. Amen.